Welcome to the History of Things podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and today you're getting a twofer. Once again, I came across a couple of topics that had very little information to go on, so I decided to put them both into one episode. So today we're going to learn about the history of Aunt Jemima and the history of one of my personal favorite foods, peanut butter. It's pretty yummy. Going to want to stick around. So I found some conflicting information when I started to do the research on Aunt Jemima. So depending on what website you're on, for example, the ABC News website, they'll say that Aunt Jemima created the recipe for the world-famous pancakes. And other websites like Aunt Jemima, Aunt Jemima, Aunt will say she was just the face that promoted the logo for the company. So my research shows that it was a Nancy Green that was the original face of Aunt Jemima. And she was the first woman of color to promote the pancakes, but she wasn't the one that actually created the recipe. It was actually the Pearl Milling Company that came up with the pancake mix back in 1888-1889. Nancy Green would be the original woman of color that portrayed the Aunt Jemima logo from the very beginning. But she, however, was not the person that came up with the actual recipe. So a little history about Nancy Green herself. She was born on March 4th, 1834, and she was born into slavery in Montgomery County, Kentucky. She was a nanny, a cook, an activist, a storyteller, and a missionary. And by all accounts, Nancy was an amazing cook. Once she was finally freed from the slavery, she became the first of many African-American models that were hired to promote corporate products or trademarks. The Aunt Jemima trademark was apparently the world's first living trademark. Nancy made an appearance at the World's Columbian Expo in 1893, portraying Aunt Jemima, of course. And she did that through a lot of other functions and venues and stuff along the way. But she absolutely refused to cross the ocean in 1900 for the Paris exhibition. So they had to replace her with someone by the name of Agnes Moody. So you could find Nancy Green, or Aunt Jemima, in places like grocery stores, county fairs, events, venues, that kind of thing, all over the Chicago area, and I think she did it for a number of years. And there were rumors that said that Nancy Green was the first millionaire woman of color. But Snops has said that Nancy Green was actually a housekeeper by trade. So if Snops is correct, then I would say the millionaire thing is a, is a false claim. And in regards to Nancy's death, there's a little bit of conflicting information there as well. 
So the ABC News website said that she died in 1923 at the age of 89. And the cause of death for Nancy was that she was hit by a car. Fox 11 website stated that it was actually a car crash that took her life. So I guess they're similar, but uh, the, the date still stays the same in 1923. And in Chicago as well, everybody agrees that it was in Chicago. So after Nancy's death, there would be another eight women of color throughout the decades that actually took her place to promote the Anjemima product. And their names were Lillian Richard, Anna Robertson, Rosa Washington Riles, Edith Wilson, Ethel Ernstine Harper, Rosie Lee Moore Hall, and Aline Lewis. So if Nancy Green or Aunt Jemima was not the creator of that famous pancake mix, who's this mysterious person you ask? Well, it was actually a guy by the name of Chris L. Rutt, R-U-T-T. Chris had a friend named Charles G. Underwood who had just bought a mill in 1888. And after they did some experimenting, they sold the excess flour as a pancake mix. It was sold in paper bags with generic labels that read self-rising pancake flour, which later became uh, redubbed as ready mix. And it's also written on the Business Insider website that Chris Rutt, as I said, was the co-founder of this ready mix. He got the idea of the Aunt Jemima name after one day watching a vaudeville show there was an african-american performer on stage and he sang a song by the name of you guessed it aunt jemima the performer had on an apron and a bandana hence the look of how aunt jemima looked in the logo so according to wikipedia the original pancake mix recipe was this 45 kilograms of hard winter wheat 45 kilograms of corn flour, 3.4 kilograms of BWT phosphates, and they were apparently from provenant chemicals in St. Louis, and 1.4 kilograms of salt. So that's basically the very beginnings of the Aunt Jemima trademark and, and brand. And in 1925 was the year that the Quaker Oats Company bought out the Aunt Jemima brand from the Pearl Milling Company, and they kept it for a few decades. And then in 2001 was the year that the PepsiCo company bought out the Quaker Oats Company, which of course meant the Aunt Jemima brand became a part of their Pepsi-Cola portfolio. And in last June in 2020, the PepsiCo announced that they were going to retire the Aunt Jemima name and the icon from their packaging in order to eliminate, eliminate any of the racial impactions and stuff that's been going on. And it's, it's kind of sad, I guess, in a sense, because, you know, it's, it's a face and a name we've known for a long time, and it's what you've gotten to recognize. But at, at the same time, I do understand 
the implications it might have and all that kind of stuff. So obviously treating people with respect uh, comes first and foremost. So the PepsiCo company just recently announced the new name brand for the Aunt Jemima line. And they actually decided to go back to the early days and they're calling it the Pearl Milling Company brand again, which I think is really cool. Why not keep the history? So yeah, that's basically the story of Aunt Jemima. I thought it was actually pretty cool. We're gonna take a short break here and then we're gonna get on to the history of peanut butter. So those of you who live in the lower mainland of British Columbia, Canada, you're gonna to wanna to listen up for a minute because I've got a tidbit of information that really could help you out. So let's face it, we all could use a reliable, honest, brilliant mechanic. How many people out there are getting scammed every day, especially if you happen to be female, which is unfortunate. But a few years back, I was in charge of the fleet of vehicles that my company had at the time. And this is how I met this Paul Carter from Paul Carter Automotive. This guy is absolutely fantastic. There were so many times where Paul could have said we needed this and we needed that, and it was a multi-billion dollar company I was working for, so putting a thousand dollars into a brake job would have been nothing. But Paul isn't like that. There was a couple of times he turned me away and said, look, you've got 30% left on the front brake pads. Let's wear them out a bit more and, and come and see me in another month or two. Everyone that I have sent Paul's way has always come back with glowing reviews on him. They were absolutely dumbfounded as to how well they were treated, the fair price, and just how well the vehicle worked when he was finished. Paul is also the only company or business that I know that actually has over a hundred five-star reviews on Google. Paul Carter Automotive has actually won awards in his own city of Abbotsford as to like the business of the year and, 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 and things like that. And it was his customers that actually nominated him for that without him even knowing. This guy is just amazing. Any vehicle, any make, any model, any year, you need to know advice on it, Paul will be able to tell you something about it. He's even given me advice on one of my ATVs back in the day. Like the guy is just brilliant and I cannot say enough about him. So please go check him out. So paulcarterautomotive.com or 604-854-1775 is the phone number and tell him that his friend Mark from the Okanagan sent you. You will be so thrilled that you did. I now live four plus hours away from Paul, so I'm not getting paid for this advertisement in any way, and, and I'm not getting any kickbacks if, you know, he's too far for me to really get any work done. So I am just purely advocating for a business that I believe wholeheartedly in, and that I've had incredible success in. So please go check him out. You won't be disappointed. Alrighty, let's get on with the show, shall we? You still comfortable? Got a, a drink in hand? So the history of peanut butter. I found the majority of this information from the nationalpeanutboard.org website. So the earliest references of peanut butter are traced back to ancient 
Incas or Incas, I-N-C-A-S, and the Aztecs. They had grounded peanuts into a paste. Now today's process of making peanut butter and the equipment to do it and the end results are actually from uh, are actually the work of three inventors. So in 1894, a Marcellus Gilmore Edson, who was a Canadian of all people, from Montreal, patented a paste from peanuts. He milled roasted peanuts between two heated surfaces. And in 1895, Dr. John Kellogg, yep, the cereal king, got a patent on the process for creating peanut butter from raw peanuts. Kellogg marketed this product as a nutritious source of protein for those that had difficulty with solid foods. Then, in 1903, a Dr. Ambrose Straub, S-T-R-A-U-B, of St. Louis, created and patented the peanut butter making machine. You may also be familiar with a fellow by the name of George Washington Carver. He was the one that was said to be the inventor of peanut butter, but in actuality he wasn't. But Carver did, however, discover 300 uses for peanuts. And these uses included some that were like chili sauce, shampoo, shaving cream, and glue, just to name a few. His innovations made peanuts a staple in the American diet. In 1921, a fellow by the name of Joseph Rosefield from California filed a patent for hydrogenation. As we all know, the naturally occurring oils from peanut butter will separate over time. And that became a huge challenge for grocery stores back in the day. They would have to keep this stuff stirred periodically throughout the day. And if they missed it too many times, the peanut butter would just go bad. And of course, they would lose the product. So in 1921, this fella Joseph Rosefield from California patented this this process so that they would turn these oils from basically a liquid state to a semi-solid state, which obviously helped keep the, the peanut butter uh, blended and, of course, allowed the peanut butter to stay fresher longer. Rosefield was also the founder of Skippy peanut butter, and Skippy actually debuted crunchy peanut butter and a new style of jars uh, named the wide mouth jars. And as far as peanut butter is concerned, that's pretty much the beginning that it had and the rest is, as they say, history from here on in. But I thought I would end the episode by going over uh, some really interesting facts about peanut butter and there's about 27 of them. So it actually takes 540 peanuts to make 340 grams of peanut butter. There's actually a law in the US that states that any product classified as peanut butter must be at least 90% peanuts. That's interesting. That's interesting that they had to come up with that law. It takes less than 18 liters of water to make 28 grams of peanuts. The average peanut farm is 80 hectares in size. 
According to a survey in 2016 by Peter Pan Peanut Butter, the average person will eat almost 3,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in their lifetime. I'm not sure if I'm up to that far just yet, but I do love the PB&J for sure. The average adult eats a peanut butter and jelly sandwich three times a month. There were two of the U.S. presidents that were peanut farmers. I had no idea about this. I never heard this. They were Thomas Jefferson and Jimmy Carter. Peanut butter and banana sandwiches were apparently the favorite of both Elvis and President Bill Clinton. And Little Brownie Bakers has stated that their cookie bakers use about 230,000 pounds of peanut butter per week for the Girl Scouts, Dosey Dos, and Tagalong cookies. In regards to smooth versus crunchy, it actually turns out that women and children seem to prefer the smooth peanut butter and the men prefer the crunchy. And residents on the east coast of the U.S. seem to prefer the smooth peanut butter, while those on the west coast prefer crunchy. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Boiled peanuts are actually a delicacy in the southern peanut growing regions. The peanuts are boiled in a brine until they are the texture of a bean. I don't know if I'd be into that. The furthest a peanut has ever been thrown is 37.79 meters. <laughs> Due to peanuts being grown underground, they are sometimes referred to as ground nuts or ground peas. The nub in between the two peanut halves is actually called the embryo. In 0 0.40 of a hectare, which is basically an acre, there's enough peanuts to make 35,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. There's actually four types of peanuts. I had no idea about this either. And they're Valencia, Virginia, Runner, and Spanish peanuts. In a high-pressure environment, I just know there's going to be a few of you that are going to try this. In a high-pressure environment, peanut butter can actually be turned into diamonds. I think a bunch of you just left the podcast. 94% of Canadians have peanuts or peanut butter in their household. 95% of Canadians consume peanuts or peanut butter every few months. 81% of Canadian males and 79% of Canadian females consume peanuts or peanut butter. 58% of Canadians consume peanuts or peanut butter weekly or more often. I'd be one of those. 91% of Canadians who consume peanuts or peanut butter consider it a healthy snack. I guess it would be if there wasn't so much sugar in there. The average Canadian eats 3 kilograms of peanuts a year. Peanut butter was a huge staple in both the world wars. That makes sense. It would be so easy to, to pack along with you. It would probably keep a while, especially after the hydrogenation. And it was a great source of protein. It looks like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich started to appear around 1901. And people such as Henry Ford, Sojourner Truth, and Amelia Earhart 
helped to establish peanut butter as a delicacy. And last but not least, the average American kid will eat close to 1,500 PB&J sandwiches before graduating high school. Pretty interesting stuff. Well, guys, thank you so much again for taking the time to listen. If you've made it this far, please take a second and and give me a review and a five-star rating. It really helps to get the podcast name out there. It would so be appreciated. Thank you to the newcomers, and thank you to those who are repeat customers. All of you are so appreciated, and I'm so happy that you're here. And until then, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next episode.